I know that there are a few people here tonight that weren't here last night. So we're going to do a very fast bullet train kind of review just so that the people who hear the rest of what we have to say tonight will have some idea of what idea. I did it again uh, of what we're talking about. Okay, ideas have consequences. The whole purpose of the class was to look at the power and the impact that ideas have on the world, on religion, on just about everything. We talked about Einstein, how some of his theories uh, regarding uh, microscopic particles and whatever led to the uh, exploration of atomic energy. Uh, we talked about the massive quantities of energy that are uh, you know, contained within some of these uh, things that resulted in nuclear power. Uh, nuclear medicine imaging. Uh, all these things, and it also resulted in the atomic bomb. So ideas can have, the same idea can have uh, both destructive or positive consequences. Now, ideas also have good and bad consequences in the field of religion. Uh, we talked about the fact that there are currently uh, Christadelphians who are promoting on the Internet the idea that evolution and, uh, you know, God can be harmonized. Uh, we, uh, this is an, an actual example of somebody who's saying that. He's a doctor who says that he has shifted from young earth creationism, which was a belief in the creation of the earth uh, by God in the relatively recent past, along to an evolutionary concept where uh, the fact that life, uh, God may have created Adam and Eve, he says, but the rest of life developed in an evolutionary process, which is something that it's very difficult to understand because they don't just fit together very well. And the other thing that always amazes me is how come if God was bright enough to create Adam and Eve, uh, why wouldn't he use the same systems like kidneys and livers and intestines and brains and lungs and all these things and the other creatures that he created? It would just make sense. So to use that as an argument for evolution seems to be somewhat ridiculous. Here is an individual who is promoting the fact that Paul supposedly uh, believed that demons were supernatural spirit beings who were responsible for false teachings. So we decided to pick a case study in which we could take a look at something that was written fairly recently and analyze it, go through it, dissect it, and to see whether the idea that was being presented, uh, what kind of impact does it have on the truth? Now, this is the excerpt that we uh, chose to take, which is an article from the Logos, October 2005. The whole uh, basis of this article is that Christ could not possibly have uh, experienced the, the thoughts of the temptations in the wilderness uh, coming from his own mind. The, the tempter could not have been Christ's own mind. As you can see in this case, uh, he makes that statement uh, you know, very plain. It could not possibly have been generated from the mind of Christ. The sinful thoughts must have been generated uh, from a mind of the flesh. We must also remember Christ had a brain of flesh. He didn't maybe have a mind of the flesh, but he did have a brain physically constructed of flesh. Uh, he, he goes into this uh, thing about uh, since the tempter said to him, if you are the son of God, you can 
uh, do such and so, and he says, well, that couldn't have been a thought that Christ had because then Christ would have doubted the fact that God was his father, which is sort of out of the the realm, I guess I would say, of a reasonable expectation. Now, is the, we discussed, is the problem whether the tempter was an internal or external? And we said, no, that's not the, the real problem. I mean, if the problem was, to me, it seems that the, there's a lot of difficulties with trying to make the tempter external. But if that was the case, uh, that, you know, uh, isn't a problem. The real problem is to say that it was impossible for Christ's nature to present him with these temptations. And why is that? This appears to be a harmless surface, and many of us might treat it that way if we were casually reading that article. But it leads to a truth-destroying conclusion. The result of the reasoning is that a thought out of harmony with God could not occur to Christ. So what looks like a harmless opinion leads to a Christ we do not know, a Christ that did not come in the flesh. There were seven key points in this article, the ones that we had uh, highlighted in color. And we just put them up here to impress them on your mind. The suggestions were evil suggestions out of a carnal mind. Notice the thought, the way the words are expressed there. They're expressed in such a way, and the words are chosen in such a way as to try to set you up to agree with him because obviously who would say that Christ was capable of of having or creating evil suggestions. The sinful thoughts had to come outside because they had to be generated from a mind of the flesh. But there's this constant need to look at the words carefully and say mind of flesh, brain of flesh, and apply those terms to Christ. However, he did not possess the mind of the flesh. I would say that that is probably true accurate based on the way he was thinking but Christ did possess a brain of flesh. The mind of the flesh is something which is working in a carnal atmosphere and uh, the subject is living that way. Now unrighteous thoughts are sin. We spent some time talking about that because all of us have thoughts that are out of harmony with God. Is it a sin? The minute it pops into our mind. We are going to we went into that to some uh, degree and the, the, the last couple of things to suggest that he wavered in faith because he used the word if we'll deal with that in some depth tonight and that he questioned his own paternity now we suggested that just to give you an idea I'm getting very hung up on that idea thing I got some people in the front row here who came running up like I said last night and said hey you know what that word that first word you get up there is he said say it say it <laughs> Well, I enjoy listening to the uh, accents down here, too. So, <laughs> The suggestions were evil suggestions out of a carnal mind, is the way the Logos author put it. I would suggest that we could phrase something that would be more reasonable, and that would be that the suggestions or the ideas could have been thoughts prompted by Christ's own nature. Regarding point number two, and this could not possibly have been generated from the mind of Christ, that our wording would be that such thoughts promoted by Christ's flesh nature could occur to him. If these things could not have occurred to him, then scripture lies because he was not tempted like unto his brethren. We then spent some time looking at the words. These words are very strong words, carnal. I mean, it has a very bad connotation to us. 
we looked at the words in the Greek, and the words have a, do not have the same connotation uh, in the Greek that the car- word carnal has in English. You'll notice that even the word carnal itself still relates more to the physical needs or appetites of the human being. When you get into the Greek words, it's almost totally concentrated on pertaining to flesh. That is the physical, animal nature. It's not saying that a thing has to be necessarily bad. It's, it's just that it has to do with our uh, fleshly bodies. And the, the root word that the, uh, of Sarks, even, you can see, is even stronger on this concept of flesh, the stripped down, the meat of an animal. Uh, it's, it's a little bit different than what we think of when we look at the uh, English word carnal. We talked about the fact that uh, there are only ten places in the New Testament the word carnal appears. The second one you see here is the only place where the words carnal and mind, which the author makes a big deal about, is uh, you know used. And putting those two words together, the, the Greek word is phronomeia, and it just means inclination or purpose. So a carnal mind then is inclined or of the flesh inclined. It's a mind that uh, governs and then uh, thoughts and carries them into action. So Christ's flesh, uh, flesh nature could cause the thought to occur to him that was not in harmony with God. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of those instances, uh, that is an instance that probably is pretty conclusive proof to me that that could happen to him. Now, Brother uh, uh, brother Williams was very uh, strong on this point. Uh, he really believed that it was, uh, you know, that these... Uh, Temptations came from within Christ. He spent quite a bit of time talking about it. We'll take a quick look at some of those things. Brother Roberts, in his earlier writings, expressed the fact that he felt that it could be, and we quoted that in our exhortation this morning, it could have been either external or it could have been internal, which is interesting, because he wrote that in Seasons of Comfort. And I don't know exact, I don't remember exactly the, uh, the time uh, comparison between uh, the seasons of comfort. And then in either the visible hand of God or the ways of providence, he changed his mind on that. And he said that it had to be an external tempter. So Christ had a physical brain of flesh. He had to feel the same temptations as we do. Or then in that case, he did not achieve victory over sin if he did not feel those temptations just like we do. So then we... De- came to the point of, is a desire out of harmony with God that arises from our flesh nature as sin? If it is, then we would be saying Christ sinned by having those thoughts. Is that the case? When does an improper thought become sin? We've just got a couple of definitions in this area. But we uh, dealt a little bit with James and his uh, you know, uh, statements on the subject of sin that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Did this apply to Christ? Did Christ lust? Now that, we said, has a, it has a, you know, a really, really terrible feeling. But the reason it has that bad, bad feeling is because of the definition of the word lust in English. If you look at the words that are translated lust in the New Testament, uh, epithumia, 
and epithumio, they do not have the meaning that we think of with the word lust, at least not with anywhere near that strength. The prime emphasis on the on these words is a longing, a strong longing, a desire. And just as an example, if you're going to translate these words, you know, lust, then we'll take a look at the uh, at what Christ had to say in, in Luke. But is lust always bad? Well, it can be good. That depends. If we translate it as desire, it depends on what the object of the desire is. If it's a good thing, it's good. If it's a bad thing, it's bad. We looked at where Christ said in Luke 22, he says, with fervent desire, now the word was epithumia, with fervent desire I have desired epithumio. I mean, he uses this, this word that's translated lust in many places. He uses it twice in the same verse to tell his disciples how, how strong his feeling was about eating this Passover with them, with them before he suffered. So that's, you know, I think rather conclusive proof, you know, of the fact that uh, the way that we should be looking at the way that word is translated. We talked about the stages of sin. So in what James had to say, the desire appears, then contemplation fertilizes it, sin is born, and death is brought forth. And he puts it, uh, when you put it in this context with the verse, He's tempted when he is drawn away. That's the desire of his own lust. But the thought is the temptation. It's not sin yet at that point. But then contemplation fertilizes. He, he divides it into stages. And then when lust hath conceived. So that desire has to be conceived. It has to be given life. It has to be fertilized, just like a child in the womb. And then sin is born. And then sin bringeth forth death. And we compared it to the uh, the physical process which James is using there of, uh, of, you know, the desire to have a baby, for example. A baby is a, uh, is a desire. It's a dream, as shown on the right under desire. Then the, uh, the fertilization happens, the mother's eggs are fertilized, and at that moment, there's a big debate in our society going on as to whether is the child, you know, uh, a living then, or is it not a life, or you know, can they do away with it? Uh, which is a rather terrible, a terrible thought, because the way God has set things up, we should all recognize that once that happens, that that's the beautiful miracle of birth, and the child, you know, should ne- never be cut off at that point. But the baby is born, just like the sin is born, as a result of that conception. And then, in both cases, death is an end result. We use this graphic here to just, and I think we can gain some profit from it ourselves. If you look at this line in the sand, you remember Christ wrote in the sand to have the ones who are criticizing the woman caught in adultery, to have their own thoughts about what their own weaknesses were. And I saw this uh, picture, and you know, it just it sort of hit me. That, you know, every single time that a thought occurred to Christ that was not in harmony with God, he drew that line right in the sand. Bang. Down it went. Temptation was down here on the lower left. 
He never crossed over that line to the other part where lust conceives, where sin is born and death is brought forth. You know, take that little graphic away with you from this meeting. And if, you know, if, if nothing else for all of us, I know for myself, if nothing else but to keep that picture in your mind and with the something occurs that you know that that's something that I really shouldn't do, that's something I really shouldn't be involved when, just think of that picture and try to draw that line in the sand and try to say, no, I'm not crossing over to where lust conceives, sin is born, and death is brought forth. I'm going to stay down here on the lower left where Jesus did, on the right side of that line and in God's favor. Now, this is where we got to the other night. And I'd like to take a little break here and to look at another. This was another paragraph that I just stumbled on as I was finishing the talk up as to Christ under trial in the wilderness. Now, here again, we're talking about something that's been written and uh, it expresses an opinion or an idea and it uses certain facts to buttress that idea. This is at the bottom here. That is just a, uh, a bigger type view of what's up on the top if it's hard for you to read. But it says, there are alternate views as to how the master was tried. Some argue it was from within, others that it was from an outside source. We read in the Matthew account that the tempter came to him. Wherever the word came is used, it applies to a person. And on this basis, we conclude it was an outside source, possibly a deputation from the Pharisees. Now, just take a second and think about that. Does that sound logical? I mean, you would think that when you put forth something like this, that you've checked it out, as uh, Brother, I think it was Brother Ken that mentioned, what did he do? He counted up the 70, oh, 70 times, that what was it that occurred in the, the New Testament? I remember the word, I remember the 70. I forget what the word was that he was dealing with. But you would think that this would be backed up with reality. But this is a baseless, totally baseless claim. I can't understand why the editor of the magazine allowed it to be published. For example, the word that is translated came, that he is talking about, that every time is translated, in other words, that applies to a person, is simply a, uh, a preposition of direction. In other words, it talks about something coming towards you or to you or pertaining to you by the side of, that's near to. Uh, where do you see anything here about the word always applying to a person? What about even it's applying uh, most of the time to a person? There's nothing there. Now, somebody might say, oh, well, that's, see, that's another word there. Well, the word that's the root form there, the 42, Greek 4253, is simply pro as opposed to prose. This word is just a, a more strengthened form of the uh, original, which basically is talking about all of the same things. Okay, does the word came always apply to a person? Well, look at Mark 9 and 7. His, and a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Here we have the word used twice in the same verse, and in neither case does it apply or have anything to do with a person. 
First it's a cloud, and then it's a voice. And the voice that came out of the cloud wasn't a person for sure, because the person who said, this is my beloved son, hear him, was Yahweh eternal. We go to Mark 9 and 21, and talking about the sickness of the child, Jesus asked the father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? Well, what came unto him? The came isn't talking about the child or the father. The came is talking about the sickness that was visited upon the child. So it has nothing to do, again, with a person. And it says in Mark 9:26, And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. Here again, what is... The this, you know, you, you know the old thing that we used to hate, the subject, the predicate, the verb, the object, the subject, all that stuff. Well, uh, obviously the came here is applying to the spirit that was being removed from the individual who was suffering. In Luke 1 and 8, and it came to pass. What came to pass? Well, the event that was occurring to uh, Zechariah at that time. And in Luke 1 and 41, and it came to pass. So, you know, this is, I guess, the thing that we're trying to really emphasize is just because somebody says something and says it in a scholarly sounding way doesn't make it true. Uh, regardless of who's saying what, if it's me or anybody else, uh, check it out and make sure that it's accurate. And, you know, if, if you're really an honest person, if somebody finds I've said something here inaccurate, I'd love to know about it because I'd like to correct it. And that's the way that we should be approaching, just like the Bereans did of old, searching the scriptures daily to see whether the things that the apostles were preaching were true. Now, Thomas Williams uh, had some interesting... He had. Uh, an article that he wrote on the temptation in the wilderness. And in it, he deals with the whole subject in two sort of separate spheres. One is a conceptual presentation on Christ and sin in general. The second is a presentation of his thoughts on the specific temptations in the wilderness. And he goes back and he... Uh, sort of summarizes the, you might say, or establishes the base that he's going to be working from. And he said the deity decreed that the plan of salvation should depend upon a complete victory over the evils which sin had subjected men to. So the things that happened in the Garden of Eden uh, have a bearing certainly on our discussion. And he said that the execution of the plan must therefore entail suffering under trial. Now, there was no human being who lived who had been capable. There were many righteous men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. David was a man after God's own heart. But even though David was a man after God's own heart, he could not get even close to what was needed to eradicate the power of death for the human race. So what did God do in his love? 
he laid help upon one born of the fallen race, his only beloved son. He required him to be the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He would be the one who would slay, who would offer that sacrifice, that shed blood that started off right in the Garden of Eden for the covering of sin and has gone on right up and went on right up till the time that Christ appeared on earth. This one, this man, through the strength that he would have, would be able to endure the trials and thereby be made perfect through suffering. He says, in the origin of the evils which salvation is designed to eliminate, there was temptation, there was sin, and there was death. And in a direct comparison, in the removal of the evils, there must be temptation, righteousness, and life. That's a really nice comparison to keep in your mind. It's beautifully put. The first Adam, he says, when he was tempted, was drawn away of his own lust. His lust conceived sin, and sin brought death. You see how that dovetails in with all the things that we've been discussing. You notice the fact of how he phrases this last sentence. The second Adam refused to allow lust to draw him away or to conceive sin. Now, what is he saying there? If Christ refused to allow lust to draw him away, then was not Christ subjected to the desires of the flesh? He had to be subjected to the desire of the flesh to be able to refuse to let it draw him away. Or once again, he didn't accomplish anything. And notice how he brings in this concept of the conception. When you have a temptation, it is at the point of when you start to contemplate, like Eve did in the garden when she started to contemplate on the fact that's really a beautiful fruit, it really looks good, it looks delicious, I'd really like to take that fruit and eat it. That's the process by where the conception of the idea was occurring. And this is where Jesus kept winning the battle. He never allowed the conception to occur. Now, there was one thought that occurred to me, and that was, well, Adam and Eve were in a very good state in the garden. Could they lust, as Brother Williams says here? I mean, Jesus had our flesh nature. We know that. So we know that he would naturally have temptations of the flesh. But what about Adam and Eve in the garden? Well, once again here, the word lust may mislead us. They could desire, and that is what the Hebrew word used here means too. In other words, all the things that we looked at with the Greek words about how the lust was not, uh, you know, it was mainly focused on desire. It's interesting that the Hebrew word is the same thing. A primitive root to delight in, beauty, greatly beloved, something to be coveted, a delectable thing, a delight, desire, goodly, lust, pleasant, precious thing. So they could, in that sense, have lusted. In his next comments, Brother William says, in considering the temptation of Jesus, 
we must keep in mind the fact that in order to destroy the devil, he was made of flesh and blood, and that he was in all things made like unto his brethren, and that therefore he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So how could such a man find it impossible to have an idea that was out of harmony with God or an idea that could be subjected, uh, presented by his flesh nature. What is it that tempts a man to do wrong? Answer, a man, when he is tempted, is drawn away of his own lusts. Then lust is the tempter, or desire. And he goes on to further document, or further strengthen his argument by saying, therefore his destruction of the devil... Jesus' destruction of the devil must be by the overcoming of the temptations which the flesh would naturally suggest and finally by voluntary submission to that death. Now it will be readily seen that Christ's temptation was necessarily a thing of the flesh as all temptation is and that there is no reason to seek further for an adequate cause. Now, when we think of temptation, we think of the tempting in the wilderness. What is it to tempt? Well, in the English language, it's this idea of luring or trying to pull somebody out or trying to, as we would say, suck somebody in. Uh, to cause desire or craving to arise in somebody. A persuasion to attempt to uh, get somebody to do something considered wrong. But interestingly, the word translated tempt from the Hebrew is nasaw. And it means to test by implication to attempt, adventure, assay, prove, tempt, or try. The Greek word that is translated tempt, and we have included an example here, 1 Corinthians 7 and 5, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency, is from the word piero. And here again, the main thrust is a test, that is, an assaying or a trial. So you see, here again we get involved in the differences, in the subtle meanings of the words between Greek and English. And a lot of times in the New Testament, especially when these words were being translated, they were being translated by people who believed in the devil. And so they had a natural uh, you know, conditioning to look at the luring or the tempting or the seduction kind of uh, presentation as opposed simply the testing or the trial. Now Thomas Williams goes uh, into quite a bit of uh, an effort to, because he's dealing with, with the subject of the devil primarily in this article, but uh, he, he sort of is pretty clear on the fact that he feels that, you know, it wasn't the devil or it wasn't any external temper, uh, tempter. For example, you know, we talked, mentioned briefly last night, the cravings of hunger. If you're in the wilderness for 40 days and you haven't had any food, you're going to be pretty hungry. God's given you the power you know that you have the power to summon 12 legions of angels to help you if you need help. God's given you the power to do miracles, heal the lame, 
heal the blind, heal the sick. You know that you have the power to turn this table into bread. But you also know that that's not the real reason that you have this power. The real reason that you were given this power was to show to the people of God that you were the promised Messiah and the one that they should follow. But how would it be not be possible? How could, how could Christ avoid not having the thought that he had the power to turn those stones into bread to satisfy his own hunger? In the second instance, we're talking about presumption. And we'll get into that, I guess, a little bit as we go into that actual example. But that was the case of throwing himself off of the, uh, the height of the temple. And the third was forbidden ambition involving covetousness, which is the rulership of the kingdoms of the earth. Brother Williams says, you know, he says it's in the hunger accompanied by this power to supply its cravings that consisted the real temptation. That's where the real temptation was. He had the ability to instantly solve the problem. And yet he had the self-control to refuse to do it in spite of how hungry he was. And as he says again, let me repeat, it was such a trial as needed no other tempter than the flesh, which in its famishing condition would naturally suggest the exercise of possessed miraculous power as a means of relief. What about the subject of presumption? Would it not be possible if you knew that you could summon 12 legions of angels to help you that the flesh might suggest to you that you could run sort of a little test to determine how protected you are? Would this not be a natural thought for the flesh to bring up? He could have made a hero of himself by doing this. Everybody would have been amazed by what he did. But he knew how wrong that was. And that was not what God wanted him to do. He says, And therefore, since flesh was his nature purposely, in order that it might do just what it did do, suggest, in this case, a presumptuous test of the truth of Scripture by a misapplication of Scripture. In other words, that he would be protected at all costs. But with Jesus, remember that line in the sand? But quick as a flash, the mind of the spirit was ready to resist and drive the fleshly thought out of the mind. It is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could summon this kind of instant strength in all situations of temptation? And he goes on to further buttress that. Another victory was won. Won over what? over the flesh, whose desire for unlawful notoriety by unlawful means was overcome. The, I think the, in this particular example, this is the strongest evidence that not only was the tempt, that the tempter was not an external tempter, 
For in this instance, you remember, the so-called devil said to Jesus, well, you worship me and you can have the kingdoms of the world. Well, if it was a deputee from the Pharisees, <laughs> who would that would almost be like a joke, wouldn't it? I mean, first of all, they really didn't even know practically about the existence of Christ at this point. Secondly, they certainly didn't believe that he was the Messiah in any sense. And who could possibly raise him up like the example shows, or like the scripture says, and promise him this great achievement? There was nobody, there was nobody on the face of the earth that could fulfill that promise. Nothing. Nobody. It was. It would be laughable. There was no such devil, and there was no such person. So where would be the temptation for Christ in that instance? There would be no temptation for him. I mean, he would know that the whoever was saying this couldn't possibly uh, fulfill the contract, so to speak. But who could have fulfilled? that contract. Jesus was the only one on the face of this earth that had at that time or ever had to do that particular thing. As the Son of God and given the power that he had been given, he could have done that. But it was not the plan of God for him to do that. And he knew that. And so he just cut it off. And it was put behind him. But in all of these things, we should be thinking ourselves about the fact that Jesus, as he worked and progressed through the period of his ministry, more and more and more, the closer he got to offering himself as that sacrifice, he was thinking of us not himself. He could have removed himself from the process. He could have done a, well, what's good for me is, but he didn't do that. And why didn't he do that? Well, it was out of love for his father to fulfill what God had said. He knew that for creation to be saved, that he had to offer that Sacrifice that Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth. And so he carried on and did it. I think Thomas Williams' uh, conclusion on these events is a very, uh, very cogently worded. The temptation of Christ cannot be explained upon any other basis than that it was a struggle of the mind in determining whether to yield to the natural inclination of the flesh to seize present temporal gratification at the cost of future and eternal blessings or to deny the promptings of the flesh, though for a time it would necessitate great suffering in order to attain to the eternal and glorious reward which God had in his wisdom and goodness placed not at the beginning of probation, but at the end. So regarding the idea that it was impossible for Christ to have a temptation arise from within, if that were the case, what did he conquer? 
He conquered nothing. He was not tempted in all points like unto us. He did not come in the flesh that we know. He did have a brain of physical flesh just like us. He didn't have a mind of the flesh. His mind was spiritually oriented, but he did have a physical brain of flesh. And that physical brain of flesh was capable of experiencing the promptings of the flesh just like it does to us. He had to experience those desires of the flesh to obtain victory over the adversary, sin in the flesh, as we would also call the devil. If there was no feeling of desire within him, then there was no temptation. The scripture tells us in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. How could he understand our temptation if he had not been tempted and had those feelings just like we have? For we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who is in all points tempted as we are, and yet he never conceived sin. And we say it that way for a specific reason, and I hope at this point that you sort of catch the reason for saying it that way, is that the thoughts could occur to him, but they never were conceived to the point that they became sin. In this particular case, we're going to... Uh, look at his uh, experience in the garden. I guess we sort of dealt with that in our exhortation this morning, so we'll, I think go over that a little quickly and deal with this last statement, which is, <clears throat> if thou be the Son of God. The tempter said to him, if thou be the Son of God. <clears throat> now he says it had to be somebody outside because how could Jesus have the thought in his head if, if, if I'm the Son of God? His whole premise is based on the word if. And that if you look, if Christ had said if, then that meant he, doubt, he doubted he was the Son of God. And that, you know, that's absolutely impossible. Well, the word if is a conjunction used to indicate the circumstances that would have to exist in order for an event to happen. Webster says if implies a condition. Now, here are examples of if. This is a conditionality kind of thing. For example, all of us here would agree with the statement, if I am a son of God, Christ will raise me at the last day. Now, when I say that, do you think that I'm saying I'm doubting whether I am a son of God or not? No, I'm expressing a condition. If the condition exists that I am a son of God, then Christ will raise me at the last day. Can you think of the President of the United States, for example, saying to his staff, if I'm the President of the United States, I can send the troops off to war. He doesn't doubt the fact he's President. He knows he's the President. But he's saying, if this is the case, if I'm the President, then I do have the right, I have the authority to send troops off to war. So, because Christ used the, had the thought, if, the word if applied to him, Let's just take a look at a couple of examples of where the word if is used 
in Scripture from Christ himself. In Luke 11:20, he says, But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, did you, would you say that here Christ thought that he's expressing doubt about the fact that he was casting out these spirits? No, he's not expressing doubt about what power he was using to cast out the spirits. He knew very well. He was just saying, you know, this is the condition and if the condition is satisfied, then the kingdom of God is upon you. In Matthew 6, he says, Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field. Is he saying that he doubts that God clothes the grass of the field? Well, of course not. He's just once again setting up the condition. If God does this, then he can do that. So the consequences of the article that we had put before you that tempting thought cannot occur without sin because unrighteous thoughts are sin. We've sort of, I hope, covered that pretty clearly at this point. Thoughts out of harmony to God are going to occur to all of us all the time. That's not where the sin occurs. The sin occurs when we allow it to be conceived, when we allow conception to take place, and we start to carry these things out into reality, or even into thinking about them we have to cut it off right at the beginning. Get thee behind me, Satan. It eliminates the reality that improper thoughts occur due to the arousal of natural fleshly desires and that Christ had to endure and conquer such also to obtain victory over sin and death. It absolutely eliminates that situation. It creates a Christ that was nowhere near tempted in like manner as we are. It presents a Christ that could not experience thoughts and desires arising internally from flesh nature. So it results in a Christ that did not come in the flesh. Now this author may not carry it out to that point, but we can be sure that others will. So all of these suggestions, the evil suggestions, uh, we could just say the, the tempting thoughts came out of a, a, mind, a brain of flesh. Temptation for the Lord himself. Strike out the fact they could not possibly have been generated from the mind of Christ. That's ridiculous. The sinful thoughts suggested by the tempted necessarily must have been generated from a mind of the flesh. Well, they were generated from a brain of flesh reacting to human nature. You know, when you look at some of these arguments and the way they're stated and the way the reasoning process goes, it sort of works like this. You all, We've all seen these syllogisms before. All crows are black. This bird is black. Therefore, this bird is a crow. Sounds really logical. It's a grackle. And that's just the way we have to look at things and examine them because many times we get presented with those kind of thoughts as we've shown tonight. So what does it mean to us? We have to very carefully examine things that are put in front of us. We have to think through what the end result of any idea will be if it's followed to its logical conclusion. Is the conclusion scriptural or does it conflict with sound scriptural doctrine? We have to think. Let us just remember, sin in Eden introduced death. 
temptation, sin, and death. The righteousness of Christ introduced life, temptation, righteousness, and life. Christ is our Passover. The angel of death in Egypt passed over the houses protected by the typical blood of the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And so with us, us, Christ is our Passover. So also will the specter of death pass over the saints who are protected through covenant relationship by the blood of the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Christ, our Passover, only through his suffering, temptation, righteousness, and love do we have this hope. Let us not let this hope die through our failure to work at following our Lord's example. Thank you, and that is the end.